Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church today. Let's begin by entering into prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you that he is the Savior of the whole world and that he came here, God became man, went to the cross, died for our sins and the sins of the world. And he was buried and you raised him again from the dead on the third day. And whoever simply believes in Jesus Christ will never perish but have eternal life. We thank you for that entire salvation by grace through faith through your son Jesus Christ and his blood. Father, today we do also want to thank you for the Holy Spirit who dwells in our hearts. And we just ask this morning, Father, that he would guide and direct every one of us into the words that you have prepared in today's message. And we also pray for the saints and their needs Pray for our country, and we just want to give you thanks for who you are also, Father, for your love and your sovereignty and power and justice and righteousness. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Next Sunday is the first Sunday of June, June 6th, so we will be celebrating the Lord's Supper together at the end of service at that time. We also have a new mailing address. So, yeah, and then I was still on Federal Highway, apparently. But, of course, this is a mailbox. We don't actually have a suite, but, you know, that's how they disguise it. So people, businesses think they have an office when they don't. But since we are in, you know, in transition right now, that's going to be our address for a while. All right. Um, so 3907, well, you can read, right? Everybody here can read, right? Anybody not? So that's our new address. Make a note of that if you need it. Our missionary organization this month, as you know, has been Mission Aviation Fellowship, a great organization that provides uh, men for the gospel in different countries as well as providing support for the indigenous churches there. In very places very difficult to get to, and that's why they're the Mission Aviation Fellowship. They have a group of planes that they use for those services. People have been asking, so I want to um, tell you this morning about the masks in, inside this building. Um, in keeping with what we understand now to be the current uh, CDC guidance, as well as the governor's uh, rulings in Florida. Um, people who have been vaccinated do not have to wear masks at all, all right, in this building, right, if you've been vaccinated. Um, obviously, you want to consider other people who may still choose to want to protect themselves in some way, so be respectful of that. Um, if you, uh, but also, um, we will not be checking passports, for the vaccine either. So just put that all together and figure out what you need to do. All right. All right, let's begin today's message. Title is from John chapter 4. And the title of today's message is The Fields Are White for Harvest. The Fields Are White for Harvest. Please turn this morning to John chapter 4, verse 27. John chapter 4, starting in verse 27. And we'll begin. I'll I'll read the passage, and then we'll get started in understanding what it means for for them at the time and for us today. John chapter 4, verse 27. At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city. And said to the men, come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. 
This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages, and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. And from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, of course, last week we were in the previous passage and there was that great conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman where he led her along one step at a time into a revelation about who he really is. He is a Messiah. This week we follow that up and now we see that The conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well ended when the disciples returned from the city of Sychar. They had gone there to purchase food. Apparently, they had the food with them. Okay, That's why they were asking one another, gee, have you given him any? Because I didn't give him any and so forth. Totally misunderstanding, of course, what he was really saying. So the woman started back up the path that disciples had just come down. Now, at this point, the disciples knew nothing about what had transpired while they were gone. All they knew was that Jesus had been speaking with a Samaritan woman. Now, they were very surprised at this. We talked about this already last week, how you know, there were sort of two taboos that Jesus was overcoming in speaking with her. One was that Jews don't have any dealings with Samaritans, or didn't. And the other one was she was a woman. I find it fascinating, by the way, that not only was she able to talk to the Lord, it was she who brought the message, the good news, back to the whole city. So, ladies, that tells you how powerful you can be with your witness. All right. But they didn't ask him any questions about it. Now, a lot of people theorize, pastors and so forth, and smart people. Why didn't they ask him any questions? Here's the answer. We're not told. We're not told why they didn't ask him any questions, but they didn't. So the woman returns to the city. Now, if you remember, before Jesus revealed who he was to her, she wasn't even willing to tell one man about Jesus. That one man being, of course, her husband. Now, however, she spoke to a large group of men about him. That took a lot of courage. It was, imagine, we know that she was sort of an outcast in her own city. And people were gossiping and whispering about her and so forth and... She didn't really want to talk to anybody. But now that she has her eyes open 
And she understood what the well of living water inside her was really all about. That made her a completely new woman. And now she wanted everybody to meet Jesus. So she took off. She left her water pot behind. Her mind was obviously on other things now. It wasn't any more on that water in Jacob's well. And, you know, she was pretty sure that she would be returning pretty soon to be with Jesus again. Look at verse 28 again. John chapter 4, verse 28. So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come, see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? She went right up to the men in the city, boldly, and got right to the point. See? By the way, a lot of men like that. When women get, I'll get you in trouble now. When women get right to the point, right? Um, in any event, she did, and she asked a question, very interestingly. She says, this is not the Christ, is it? Now, she already knows that this is the Christ. So you may ask, ask yourself, why would she ask that question? Was she falling back? Was she unsure all of a sudden? No. She was leading them on now. In the same way that the Lord led her on with questions, she's leading the men on with questions. She asked, so she, she hoped that they would wake it up, awaken their own thirst, find out who this man really was for themselves. And then we have that simple expression, come and see. Come and see. That, that's the invitation in the whole Gospel of John. Come and see this man. All right, so earlier, if you remember, uh, we'd seen this expression when Philip, in chapter 1, if you go there now to John chapter 1, verse 45, John chapter 1, verse 45. Philip, who was one of the uh, first few disciples of Jesus, was now reaching out to a friend, Nathaniel. Notice what he said to Nathaniel. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. I want to point out something here about what exactly Philip said here. Very interesting. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. The reason that's interesting is because the Samaritans, if you recall, only thought the first five books of the Hebrew Bible were really the word of God. And so they they would have taken and did take their understanding of the future in terms of only the first five books. We saw that in Deuteronomy was where Moses talked about the prophet who was to come. And here we have Philip earlier on talking also about the fact that Moses wrote about Jesus. It's a fairly stunning thing to say that early on. But he believed it at that point. And then the prophets. The prophets, of course, were the ones who, little by little, revealed more and more information about Jesus as the King of Israel, as the Messiah. So even here, we have, the, have set up for us this idea that Jesus was both the prophet who is to come and the Messiah. And that would turn out to be crucial when it comes for the evangelization of the Samaritans who, remember, were expecting the prophet from Moses and didn't recognize the Messiah from the prophets. In any event, verse 46, Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? 
Philip said to him, what? Come and see. There's that invitation again. That's the invitation of this gospel. Not only to the people at the time who heard that again and again, but again for everybody now. Everybody. That's why it's the, it's the best gospel for evangelism. Because the whole thing is, come and see who Jesus is. Really straightforward. Really profound. Especially when we see what the Gospel of John tells us about who Jesus is. The Word who has existed forever with God and was God. Became flesh and dwelt among us. And He is the Son of God. And He was full of grace and truth. And He is the promised Messiah, the Christ. And many, many more things that get revealed about Him in this Gospel. All right. So the Gospel of John, quite simply then, invites all people to come and see who Jesus really is. Who he really is. So if you want to tell people who Jesus really is, go to the Gospel of John. As we've seen already, the very first chapter, the first 18 verses... Many people have memorized them. They're so powerful. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the very beginning of the Gospel, we as the readers are told all the information that we would need to know to not only understand ourselves who He is, but to tell others about Him. But as the Gospel unfolds, we see again and again in different situations, different people coming and being brought to Him, and then Him saying and doing such that reveals who He is. And as we've seen, in a different facet, different people, different backgrounds, but all wanting to know, or at least being told, who Jesus is. That's the Gospel of John. Now, in, chapter, in verse 30, you'll notice what is said in verse 30 now. We're going to move forward to verses 30 to 34. John 4, back to John 4, verse 30. We're going to see that the woman was very successful with that one question. Notice. They, now these are the men in the city. Think about it, all right? They were doing their thing. Who knows? Maybe it was a work day. They were doing their things. They dropped everything and went to see Jesus. They went out of the city and were coming to him. The woman was very persuasive here. What had been riveting to her, how could he know I have five husbands, became riveting to them. They asked the same question. How could he know that she had had five husbands? Not only that, but he says he's the Messiah. That's astounding. Let's go find him. Perhaps we can invite him to stay with us. Meanwhile, back at the well, verse 31. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now, you've got to give a little break to the disciples at this point. I mean, if they, have been, they went into the town to get food, right? They're coming back with the food, right? It's like an Italian mom, you know, manja, manja, we brought all this food over, please eat it, right? But then he didn't, and they were like confused. Now what happened, oh, wait a minute, I know, somebody else gave him food to eat. By the way, knowing full well that that couldn't possibly have happened because they had just come back, and he said this, and he clearly hadn't eaten anything. 
So now it's the disciples' turn to completely misunderstand what the Lord was saying. Haven't we seen this already several times in this gospel? Remember in chapter 2 when Jesus was in the temple and he overthrew the tables and he ushered out all those animals and so forth? And then the, then the Jews would turn to him and said, by what authority do you do this? Right? This temple has taken 46 years. They said, listen, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. They said, hey, again, this has taken 46 years to build. How are you possibly going to build it, rebuild it in three days? They, of course, misunderstood. Why? Because he was talking about his body. So that was one big misunderstanding in this gospel. Then we had Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was fixated on the idea that he might have to go back into his mother's womb. Remember when Jesus said, you must be born again? Again, completely misunderstanding what Jesus was saying. And here with the woman at the well, it was water. She thought, when Jesus was talking about living water, remember, she thought he was talking about water that was underneath the well that was, come, that was running, and that was what he was talking about. But it couldn't have been when you think about it. We saw this. He talked about a well running up to eternal life, which is something that that water never did. And yet still there was this misunderstanding. And now it's the disciples' turn to completely misunderstand what he meant by his food. So whether it's the temple or the mother's womb or water, we'll see later bread. That'll be another misunderstanding when he talks about bread. And here it's food. Because as we know, as we see, Jesus was not talking about physical food. When were they going to get the hang of this, right? That he wasn't interested in what he would say another time. When it's not what goes into the man, right? It's what comes out of him. He was interested in the spiritual aspect. into the word of God. into the heavenly things. He was talking, therefore, about his own spiritual nourishment. We have to remember that Jesus is completely God and completely man. It's the miracle that we'll never understand about who this unique person is, our Lord and Savior, both God and man. And and in his humanity, he needed spiritual nourishment, just like we do. He got tired, just like we do. He, he He wept, just like we do. But he found his spiritual nourishment in one place, and that is in the will, doing the will of his Father. You know, the Lord had taught Israel and nation very much the same thing. That when they were in the wilderness in those 40 years and they were complaining about being hungry, please turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8, starting in verse 3. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. This people at this time were totally fixated on their bellies. Why did he bring us out here into this desert to die? We're starving. Why can't we go back to Egypt? At least we were fed back there. See, their minds were not on heavenly things. Their minds were not on this miraculous God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who had promised to deliver them from any of the situations they were ever in. No, they were thinking about food. Verse 3, Deuteronomy 8, 3. He humbled you, and he let you be hungry. See, sometimes when the Lord wants us to understand our real needs, he's going to let us deal with a lack for a while. I think most of us who have been in Christianity as Christians for a while have experienced this. 
when perhaps we're asking for something. But perhaps either we're not ready or we see it the wrong way. He may, he may hold back for a while. Now we say the Lord answers prayer and he certainly does. But he's not, he doesn't conform to our timetable. And here he was letting them go hungry for a little while so that they would see the big picture. Big picture. What's the big picture? Well, again, verse 3. He humbled you and he let you be hungry. And then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, that heavenly food. Nor did your fathers know. This was something new. This was something they didn't know about. Why? That he might make you understand. Understanding is what the Lord, right? Let not a mighty man boast of his might or a rich man of his riches, but boast that he knows and understands me. Jesus Christ in chapter 17, in praying with his father, he would say that he wanted wanted them to have eternal life. And then he said, Father, eternal life is to know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, that's our spiritual food, is to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Again, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. That's why it's so crushing to see the famine of the word of God that exists today. Not only in the world or in our country, but even in the, in, in the Christianity, I'll call it that. I won't call it the church because the church is the members of the body of Christ. But so there's, there's a, there, if you don't think there's a famine for the word of God then you better check out a little bit more about what's going on in Christianity today because it truly, truly is. I would suggest to you that the last thing on many people's mind who call themselves Christians in this country is everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. They're much more interested in the things of this world, the things of this earth. And I'm not just talking about riches. I'm also talking about focus. You know, if you, if you were to go in the typical church today... You would find, actually, a lot of distracting things going on, okay? A lot of focus on unimportant things, like look at the hairdo of the song leader. You know, I'm kind of exaggerating. No, actually, I'm not. Um, and, then, and then a lot of focus on social issues. You know, like I've been pestered lately. You know, pastors get pestered by different things that come their way because we're pastors. Text, emails, mail, all that stuff. And now the thing is they want, they want, they want the pastors to speak out about the vaccine. I guess I kind of did this morning. But no, they want to, they say, half the group wants to say, you know, preach a message on why they have to have the vaccine. And the other group is saying, preach a message on the evils of the vaccine. And I'm thinking to myself, that would be quite the message if I could pull off both of those things. But no, it's the word of God. Preach the word in season and out of season. Right? We are to be the pillar of the truth as members of the body of Christ. We are to grow together by means of the preaching of the word of God. That's foremost. That's central. As a matter of fact, that's everything. Because the other things will come alongside when people understand who Christ is, what he did for us on the cross, how we were born sinners because of Adam's sin, and that we were delivered from that by the blood of Christ on the cross. And then as he was risen from the dead, now we're risen from the dead. And then who we are as his adopted sons and daughters, how we do have the spirit indwelling in us. And then all those things make us realize that there's a whole new life possible, a life by the spirit, not by the law. And when you step into that life, 
Believe me, like Jesus said, seek first his righteousness. All those other things will follow. That's the order. That's the central part. Okay. In any event. Jesus, of course, understood that. What was his food? He fed off accomplishing the will of his father. That is what sustained him. What sustains you? That's a question that that we all need to consider from time to time. What am I really relying on to give me life? To give me a reason for being here? To give me an understanding of what it means to really live? What is that for us? What is our sustenance? You know, is it our job? Is it a relationship in life? Is it money? Is it whatever you, a calling, a cause, a political party? You know, be honest. If it's any of those things, that's not a good diet to be eating. Okay, because eventually those things are going to disappoint, become flavorless. You know, in large respect, the, the spiritual life growing, you know, sanctification is losing our taste for everything that's not Christ. It takes a while. I still have some taste in my mouth that I, you know, without getting into anything specific. I know you guys are dying to understand all my sins, but I tell you a few of them time to time. Probably dangerous to do, but. All right, it's not about me. Jesus fed off accomplishing the will of his father. And right now, where Jesus was at that well, Jacob's well, underneath Mount Gerizim, he knew that his father's will for him was to present himself to the Samaritans and present himself to them as the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world, of the world. Because you see, his father wanted to save all the people in the world. At that time, not just the Jews, not just, first and foremost to the Jew first and also to the Greek, okay, but not just the Jewish people. Now, I say back then because today there's still, there's still lots of Christians who don't believe this, <laughs> that they think that there's a certain in-group that God has picked and he's after them, saving them, and not the heck with all the others. That is not at all what the Lord said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. God is not willing that any should perish. Jesus Christ is the savior of all men, especially the believer. And that's the same thing here. They say that the world in which Jesus lived needed to know that. They didn't know that. Even the Samaritans themselves knew that they were in, in this area less than, or thought they were less than the Jews. Right? Um, they knew that they were confused about their religions. That was the problem. You know, whenever people try to pack religions together and say, well, you know, I'm going to be a Jewish, Christian, mystic, Buddhist. You know, talk about confusion, right? They knew that's what they were doing. But God loved them anyway. God was after them anyway. He wanted to save all the people in the world, not just the Jews. And what better way to demonstrate that that to have his son, God in the flesh, go to the Samaritans, preach the good news of the gospel to them. These are the ones, remember, that the Jews had no dealings with. They thought they were way up here and the Samaritans were way down there. The last thing in the world they would thought if God was going to start saving somebody, it wouldn't be the Samaritans. It would be anybody else but. Maybe the Romans, maybe. You know, yeah, the Greeks, sure. 
the Samaritans? There's no possible way. So God said, oh yeah, there's a possible way. As a matter of fact, I think this will get the point across. I'm going to send my son to the Samaritans. I'm going to, not only that, but I'm going to have the Samaritans be the ones who declare that my son is the savior of the world. They're going to say it. I'm going to send a woman who had five husbands to them to let them know that Jesus is the Messiah. Am I getting your attention yet? If not, after Jesus rises from the dead, he is going to say, now I need somebody to go into the Gentile world. My father wishes to save everyone. Who am I going to send? You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send the worst enemy of the church today. I'm going to pick him, Saul of Tarsus. I'm I'm going to rock his world. He's going to understand who Jesus really is, the message of the Gospel of John. And he's going to be the one. As the worst sinner who ever lived, what better man could could the Lord pick to send out the message, whosoever believes, no one is beyond the grace of God. That's how he operates. In the Old Testament, he did the same thing. right? He picked Jacob, the swindler, to be the one who would bring the line across to forward to Jesus. Always after those kind of things. There's two women that are mentioned in the lineage of Jesus, maybe three, but they're, they're Gentiles. <laughs> I mean, at some point, you've got to understand that this is who God is. He's not going to fit in your box. He's certainly not going to fit in an exclusive box that says, I'm better than you. That's the last place where he's going to fit. All right. His father wanted to save all men. All people, women and men, in the whole world. And then, therefore, what did he do? He sent somebody to. He sent his son. His son was on a mission and he knew it. His son was on a mission to save the world and he knew it. God so loved the world. God God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but to save it. That was his mission. He was totally, completely 100% focused on the will of his father his entire life. And from here onward, that's what he would keep saying. You see, in order for him to succeed in that mission, to save the world, this is what had to happen. Every one of his thoughts, every word that he spoke, every action that he took, had to be exactly in line with his father's will. That was the only way this job was going to get done. And so he would say again and again, starting here, that his whole focus was not on himself, but on the one who sent him. Look at John chapter 5, verse 30. John chapter 5, verse 30. Heading back to John. I have food to eat that you don't know about, he told his disciples. It's to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Look at John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. By the way, he wasn't saying here that he he was like unable to. He was saying, I've got a mission. Therefore, I can do nothing on my own initiative. That's not going to work. I'm going to... Totally ruin it if I do that. As I hear from the Father, I judge. I do my evaluations based on the information he gives me. And my judgment is just and righteous. Why? Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
That's who he's focused on all the time, all the time. He came here, you know, when he went to the cross, he certainly did die for our sins. And thank God he did. But you know what was foremost on his mind when he was there? A lot of people say, oh, I was on his mind. Yeah, you probably were. But you know what was number one on his mind? To vindicate his father's righteousness. That was the number one thing for him. He was oriented to his father because he knew when he was oriented to his father, which he always was, that God wanted to save the whole world. And that, as if I could put it this way, everything was going to work out perfect as long as he just focused on his father's will. And of course he did. And voila, here we are today, saved in the blood of the Lord. I can do nothing on my own initiative. I, as I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will but the will of him who sent me. By the way, that is true justice. Why am I saying that? Because whenever somebody does something, rule a ruling, an evaluation, according to their own interests, you better be really careful. That's what's so corrupting about a judicial system. When people are in it who's supposed to be objective, and in the case of the Lord, hearing the word of his father and doing it, by the way, that's, that should be everybody's standard of justice, by the way, right? I mean, I, it's not what this mind thinks. I know that this mind, before I became a believer in Christ, was, was wretched, was depraved. Why would I ever trust that, it, you know, in isolation and not considering the thinking of God? In any event, I'm just wanting to see how, how much it, it was absolutely crucial for Jesus to only do the will of his father. That was his food. But he also wanted it to be the food of his disciples as well. He wanted them to understand what this food was all about. He wants us to understand what this food is all about. Man, all of us don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. If we want to keep our heads straight in this crazy world, there's only one way to do it. And that's to hear the words of the Lord. If we, want to, if we want to be confident that we're making good, good judgments in life, there's only one way to do it. Don't read your law textbooks unless you're a lawyer. Okay, That's not the place for it. Because there's two things that I think are the most confusing things in this world. One is philosophy. If anybody's ever studied philosophy in any, for any period of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. All right, This one says this. This one says that. Economics is like that. You know, Economists have a lot of hands. Why do I say that? Because on the one hand, on the other hand, and then, you know, there's all of that confusion. Law, crazy. I don't want to get into a political discussion, but when you see how a wrong turn in a manner of applying law, can what it leads to, you're like, wait a minute, how could that possibly happen? Because man of, its, of our own doesn't think right. Can I get an amen on that? We don't. We don't think right. Never trust your own thinking. I mean, I mean that's what, you know, don't trust in your own judgment. Lean not on your own understanding. Right? Isn't that what the Bible says? Lean not on your own understanding? You bet. Put no confidence in the flesh. This was the food that the Lord had. And he wanted to get his disciples focused on that food as well. But in order to do that, he had to get their minds off earthly things. Right? If you want people to stop focusing only on what's, what their self-interest is... And uh, the, the, what, they, what they need in that moment, their needs, their desires, and so forth. How do you do it? Well, if you're a legalist, you put them down and condemn them for it. But, you know, I don't know about you, but that's never worked, you know, really. 
And the Lord was smart enough to know this too, and he told Paul the secret. He said, listen, you see, here's the issue. You're sinners. I wanted you to know you're sinners, so I gave you the law. And the thing about it was, was as soon as the Lord's going to come in on the scene, you're going to become worse sinners. <laughs> That's what he said. He said, the, the, why? Not because of the law, but because of how evil our flesh is. It takes opportunity from the law. Oh, I see. This is our flesh now. I see, Lord. You want me to do that. Okay, I'm going to do the opposite. That's the nature of our flesh. That's how evil it is. That's how evil it is. So he had to get their mind off earthly things and onto heavenly things. How was he going to do that? By the way, he always starts with the earthly things. If you ever noticed that, Notice that about him. When he wanted to teach a great principle in, in the, like the, what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he told what? Parables. Well, how did the parables work? He said, I'm going to talk about something in the natural world, in the, the physical world, the earthly, and then I'm going to explain how that, that illustrates something in the heavenly world, the kingdom, right? A man went out to sow. Right? And he talked about that. They go, oh, I understand that. We're a farming economy. I understand that. Yes. And then he says, that's the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Wait a minute. Let me think about that. That's how he taught. From what you knew to what you didn't know. And he does the same thing here. He starts off on the earthly things. But here, he's going to give them a powerful visual aid to help them understand their calling what the heavenly things were going to mean to them, what the real food that they should be seeking was all about. But again, he starts off in the natural realm. In the natural realm. All right? They were talking about food and whether he's eating it or not. And he's trying to tell them, I got food that you don't know about. How am I going to get the point across? I tell you what, I'm going to start where your wheelhouse is, guys. I, I want to start where your minds are at anyway, which is, which is food and bread. And I'm going to talk about a harvest to you. And I'm going to start by talking about a grain harvest, which you're really familiar with. Look at John 4.35. Go back to chapter 4, verse 35. I hope you're processing, storing away these things that we learn about witnessing about dealing with people that are on the wrong track, right? What did the woman do? Did she go back? To the, to think about this. Imagine if she had gone back to town and she said, hey, guys, get over here. You're teaching a false religion. And they're like, who is she, right? What did she do? She says, I have met the Messiah and he knew everything about me. Now, what does that do to somebody? Well, I want to know. I'm not sure if I believe this woman, but I certainly want to see for myself. Jesus does the same thing. He's saying, okay, listen, I could have criticized you or condemned you for your stupidity and not understanding my food, but I'm not going to do that. Why? Because he's, he's gracious. He's full of grace and truth. I'm going to give you the truth and let you work it out. Verse 35, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Apparently, this was a common saying at the time. Probably after they finished sowing and people were saying, I need bread, I need bread. And, they, and he says, they say, listen, it takes time. We can't just throw the seeds on the ground and have bread the next day. It takes four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. 
Again, he's really saying the same thing that he was saying to the woman, right? You're interested in water. I've got living water that springs up to eternal life. I've got better water. He's saying, here's a better harvest. All right? It's already planted and it comes up immediately. It's right in front of your eyes. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Now already, think about it, already they should be realizing, well, you know, if I look out in front of me right now, there's no harvest. I mean, it's distilled. You know, the, the, the wheat is getting somewhat big, but it's not white. It's, what is he talking about? Ooh, my Rhode Islandese just came back. What's he talking about? But he wasn't talking, any, he wasn't talking about wheat. He was using that to get, their, get them to think about what's really important. What does he say? Already, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit. They were like, oh man, I mean, there's some people in the next town that have figured out a way to, to speed up the process and they were already getting paid and getting... No. He goes on. This is what he always does. He puts something in that's like, wait a minute, that, shouldn't, that doesn't belong here in my way of thinking. See, they're already receiving wages. They're already gathering fruit. And they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. For life eternal. Right? Just like he said about the water. A well of water in you springing up to eternal life. And literally, he's taking them. If you have that picture of that well springing up to eternal life, that's the voyage he's taking them on when he starts with the earthly and gets to the heavenly, when he starts with a grain harvest on the ground and he brings them up to the harvest of souls, bringing them to eternal life. That's how he teaches. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. And I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now make no mistake, in that time, in that location, the grain harvest was a time of great rejoicing. It was their economy. Not only that, but they lived in a part of the world where it was dry a lot of the time. And they totally, whether they understood this or not, they were totally reliant on the grace of God to provide the rains in their season so that they wouldn't starve. So anytime there was a harvest, it was a time for great rejoicing. But just like that water in the well that a person would drink and then be thirsty again, those who ate the bread of that grain harvest in the ground would be hungry again. They just would be. I know that very well. If I wake up in the morning and I don't have my breakfast, like after about an hour, I'm like, there's something radically wrong about my day. What did I forget, you know? When you eat the bread of the earth, you're hungry again. When you eat the bread of life, which we'll find out later, is the Lord himself, you will never go hungry again. So I want, I want to show you a scripture now. I'm not going to have you turn there. Just because, I don't know. Jesus, I want you to mark carefully, though, what Jesus says in chapter 6. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Think about that. I am the bread of life. Not only is there a harvest, a spiritual harvest, but the bread of that spiritual harvest is a life, and Jesus is the bread. 
Again, this whole gospel is pushing people toward that one great question. Who is Jesus? Everything about this gospel screams that. And so, and so he's always going to bring people along so that finally they're there. Like the woman who's finally looking at him and, and hearing him say, I who speak to you am he, the Messiah. I am the bread of life. And then he goes on. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The disciples were going to be invited to join the greatest harvest of all time. It was a harvest that Moses never got to see. It was a harvest that, harvest that none of the prophets ever got to see. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. It was a field beyond their wildest dreams if they had just eyes to see it. It was men... All right, all right. So I'm a baseball fan. It's one of my favorite movies. But honestly, though, this, this really, it did make me think of this when all of a sudden you had men that were dead and they were coming out of the cornfields and they were alive again. You know, that is kind of what the Lord is talking about there. He's asking them to join in the work of harvesting men. He's saying, lift up your eyes and you will see a harvest that brings eternal life to men. Why? Because Jesus is the bread of that harvest, and he's the bread of life, and that harvest brings eternal life to men. Now, at that time, whoops, I ruined it. I'm, I'm like one of these people that can never tell a good joke because my timing is always off, you know. Because at that very moment, the Samaritans, there were Samaritans, remember? We saw that they were coming down. They were coming down toward him and toward his disciples. So when he told the disciples to lift up their eyes, this is what they saw. Not exactly this, but these are actually Samaritans today, by the way. These are Samaritans today. And of course, you can see, I don't know if they were white that day, but they're white in this picture. So he saw that. They saw that, and they finally made the connection. He said, they're white. the harvest is white, it's ready, it's, 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 it's ready to go. It's ripe. And look what he's having me look at. Samaritans, right? On a couple of levels, this would have blown their mind. On one level, they realize now for sure he's not talking about wheat. But not only that, he's not talking about Jewish people either. He's talking about a harvest of Samaritan souls. These are the fields that men would be sent to now, the disciples, fields of men. That's what Jesus was talking about. He's saying, your food from now on is going to be to do the will of my Father. And my Father's will for you is to reap a harvest of men's souls for eternal life. Gather that fruit for eternal life. Fields of men. I like this too because when you first look at it, it kind of just looks like a field White for, the, you know, white for harvest, and then you look a little closer, you see men and women there. That's what he's talking about. He's still talking about that. That's what, that's what we're called to do today, too, isn't it? As a body, by the way, as a body, we're called to join in the harvest. Others, they did the work, the labor. We have a great legacy, okay? If you look back, 
You can see the legacy of men and women for centuries who have preserved the gospel, preserved the word of God, gone to other countries to preach the gospel, kept the churches alive in our own country, to continue to prepare pastors for the next generation. That's all labor that we are just benefiting from today. And so we are to turn and continue the, that work, that work of the harvest. And we're going to see in, a, in just a minute what that seed of that harvest is. Because the sower of the seed of that harvest, don't make any mistake, it's the Lord. He's the sower of that seed. But the seed is the word of God. It's the word of God. And I want to show you a passage. Um, and actually, I want you to turn to a passage in First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. So you can, you can see... The seed that he's talking about. Sowing the seed. This is probably his favorite parable type when he told parables. Was a a sower going out to seed. Whether it was the, the seed that fell on the dry land or the side of the road or whether it was the seed, that the, that the good seed that went into the ground, and then the enemy comes in and, and, and plants the, the, the tares. Whatever it was, he loved to use that, that picture of a seed, and a farmer sowing seed, because that's what it's all about. But the seed isn't physical. It's the word of God, alive and powerful. Look at First Peter chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, okay, like Nicodemus needed to be. But you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. You see, the the seeds in the ground, they're there for a harvest, but eventually that plant dies, and then other seeds take over. But the seed of the word of God never dies. It never dies. That word in your soul is going to be around forever, eternity, eternity. And that's really... That and what it says is really kind of the only thing that we're going to bring with us into eternity. Other than, I guess you could say our resurrection bodies, okay, sure. But I'm talking about the thing, the precious riches, is really God's word. And so when that's in your heart, that is something. Those are riches for eternity. Riches for eternity. You have been born, born not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of See, one of the things about learning the Word of God is that you start to learn how precious the Word of God is. And that when you're there, then now you are are feeding on what matters. All right. Those who have labored, again, those whom the Lord has called to preach the Word of God. In, In this day, when Jesus walked the earth, that would have been Men like Moses and the prophets and so forth. Men like John the Baptist, okay? Those who had been, later on, Paul would talk about the same people. He would say there were, there were prophets and, and, and um, evangelists, pastor teachers, apostles. See, those are, the, those are the ones that are laboring. Those are the ones who have planted the seed. All right. Now, in the Gospel of John, um, there are a lot of those um, who are, um, where am I? I am losing my, okay, there we go. See, I have these slides in front of me. 
And every once in a while, what just happened, happens. You see, my cue to life is to see the one that's in yellow. Okay, and then that means the next one is where I'm... There's two of them in yellow right now. I don't know how that's, how that's possible, but this is where we need to go. Reaping in the Gospel of John means testifying about Jesus and bringing people to him. Right? Isn't that what John the Baptist did? Isn't that what Philip did? Isn't that what the woman did? Yes, it is. Testifying about Jesus and bringing people to him. But you know what? In order to be able to really testify about Jesus, you got to believe the things about who Jesus is. That's the number one thing. Believe, in other words, yes, we can, we can see the Gospel of John. We can read it. There are scholars out there who have made it their life's work. But none of that matters until you believe it. Until you believe it. Then, and really only then, can you really testify. You know how when people are on the stand, they say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? But you can't do that about Jesus if you don't believe the truth about who he is. And then bring people to him. That's, that's the reaping that's in, that we see in view in the Gospel of John. John the Baptist, best example. Please turn to John chapter 1, verse 34. I'm talking about at this time. I mean, ultimately, of course, Jesus is the best. Paul is going to be great. But right now, in terms of who has prepared the way, who has been the one who, who has been witnessing and telling people to follow Jesus? John chapter 1, verse 34. Of course, this is the words of John the Baptist now. He's speaking to his disciples now. Imagine how hard, or at least um, bittersweet it must have been for John. He had this great ministry. He was baptizing in water so the Jews would recognize Jesus when he was manifested. That must have been tremendously fulfilling, tremendously excited to have all these men who were following him. Humanly speaking, that's pretty cool. Now he knew he had to give all that up. And he he had to start sending people away toward Jesus. That must have been hard. But he did it out of love. He was actually really happy. Because why? Because the bridegroom had arrived. In any event, John chapter 1 verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified. That this is the Son of God. Again, this is another place where it's crystal clear. It, who, do, who is Jesus? Somebody wants to know. Well, you know who John the Baptist said he is? The Son of God. You know what the purpose of this whole gospel is? Remember we saw it in John chapter 20, verse 31. These have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And here it is. John testified that to his disciples. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked. And he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. That's reaping. That's witnessing. The focus should never... This is why um, I don't want to make it an ironclad rule, but I frown on the idea that we're supposed to give our testimony when we witness to people. No. Did John do that? 
Did he get up and say, you know what? I've, been, I've had the Holy Spirit inside from my mother's womb. <clears throat> I was born miraculously. You know what? I, I, I'm a relative of that Jesus. So I'm pretty important too. Did he say any of that? He did not. He kept talking about Jesus. That's what we got to keep doing. We got to keep doing that. I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, earlier he said, this Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. That's who he is. That's him. And the two disciples heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. We saw Andrew and Philip. Okay, two of the first disciples. They did the same thing. They reaped, as it were, Peter and Nathaniel. And as we've seen today, the woman at the well was also a reaper. Come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? John 4.39. Scoot on over to John 4.39. What happened? From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him. Because of the word, ladies, what does it say? Of the woman who testified. Yes, ladies, you can testify. You are powerful witnesses of your own. Okay? And yes, you can witness to a man or a group of men. You can't preach the word of God, you know, unfortunately for you, but you can witness, you can be uh, persuasive, you can have a, an eternal impact. That's what this woman did. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, and they did, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer simply because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard from ourselves, for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, to you or I, two days may not seem like a lot. But I want you to think about something that, hopefully you guys have been reading the Gospel of John, and we've been there, because he he says something at the end, he says that, you know, I, I put these things together for a special purpose, but if I were to record everything that Jesus said or did, I suppose not even the books in the whole world could capture it. What did that mean? That he can get a lot done in a short period of time. A short period of time. So that was two days was a huge amount of time for him to be preaching and teaching and showing them who he was. And then they realized, they heard from themselves and they knew who he was. But I want you to notice something tremendous that has happened here as well. There's a group of Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Jews hated the Samaritans. They worshipped in different places. They had their own, they had their own uh, Passover, the Samaritans did. They had all of that. They had a totally different religious system. Here comes a rabbi, so they thought at first, who was teaching all the things about the Jewish religion that they didn't believe in. Yet, here's a group of Samaritans imploring, begging a Jewish rabbi, to stay with them. I mean, it's not quite the same, 
But it would be kind of like if we were today, if there was a grand mosque, wherever it is, maybe in Saudi Arabia, there you go, right, in Mecca. And they invited uh, a Jewish rabbi to preach to the Muslims in Mecca. Does that get the point across? That's what we're talking about here, okay? Enemies. A group of Samaritans implored a Jewish rabbi to stay with them. The dividing wall between them was already starting to crumble. And they began to realize something. They began to realize that the prophet of Moses that they were looking for and waiting for, and the Messiah of the line of David that the Jews were hoping for and waiting for, were one and the same person. And they had met him. And he was standing there with them. Who was he? Jesus of Nazareth. I, I know we know this. And I know we've heard it a hundred times. But let's enter, enter into the ex- incredible excitement. Now you've got something else, though, that you have to think about. Is that when, when, when they invite, invited Jesus to stay with them two days, you know what else they did? They invited his disciples to stay with him for two days. Because they were packed. They were all together. So I want you to imagine the excitement finally when both parties opened their eyes and realized this fact that each one of them had been waiting for centuries for who they thought were two incompatible people. There was a Messiah. There either was the Messiah of the line of David, Jews stand up, that's our guy, or there was the prophet. Samaritan said, that's what we think. They would battle about that. Now all of a sudden on this particular day, they're standing there, they're hearing from this one man, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the one that's, that Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You bet it can. This one, Jesus of Nazareth, is the one that brings, makes people realize that whatever it is that you've been hoping for, whatever it is that you've come and you've worshipped, whatever it is, put it away. Because there's one, there's one way to God. And that's Jesus of Nazareth. These were one and the same person. But amazingly, it went beyond that. Their faith and their knowledge leaped over even that. Why do I say that? What were they proclaiming by the end? That Jesus is the Savior of the world. The world. So in other words, they understood now that Jesus was the one that the Samaritans were waiting for and the Jews were waiting for. But this was something else entirely, that he's the savior of the whole world. By the way, you won't find anybody else in the Gospel of John saying that. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just like God, that he would have the Samaritans be the ones that would proclaim that Jesus is the savior of the world? Now, now how did that work? Well, he had come for them. And when you think about it, if the Messiah of Israel was the savior of the hated Samaritans, he had to be the savior of the whole world. It was that simple. He truly is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right, John chapter 3, verse 16. We'll close. John three sixteen. This gives me yet another new insight, by the way, studying this into this passage. You know, it's, it's probably the most well-known passage in the Bible, right? When I was a kid, at every Super Bowl, 
there was a guy with this, this afro that had like eight, nine colors in it. And he would always get a ticket in the end zone. Because he knew when that somebody scored a field goal or a touchdown, the cameras would be looking. And he would stand up and he would have a big banner that said John 3.16. Right? Um, and so we, this is very, and, and it should be, by the way. This really should be the, the, mo, you know, the, the statement to the world. Okay? But you can still see something new in it. That's the amazing thing about the Word of God. You can always see something new. And I was done studying this week about the Samaritans and seeing him as, this, as the Savior of the world. This popped in a whole new way. Notice, for God so loved the world, Jew, Samaritan, Greek, Roman, drunkard, slave driver, slave, man, woman, Gentile, Jew, whoever, whoever believes. For God so loved the world... Everybody that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever, say that with me, whoever, the guy or maybe it was a girl who parked his car sideways this morning to block off two spots in our parkway, parking lot, he's a whoever. God loves him too. He loves him so much that he gave his one and only son so that if whosoever, we don't know who that guy is, he has Indiana license plates. Could be somebody from Indiana. I don't know. Could be a Muslim from Indiana. I don't know. I don't care. God certainly doesn't care. If he believes in the Son of God, he will never perish but have eternal life. Why? Verse 17. Who was Jesus looking at the whole time? Whose will did he care about? His Father's. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Please, please remember this when you witness. Because just like God didn't send his son to judge the world, he didn't send you either to judge the world. He sent you to do the same thing his son did, which is to do what you can to save people. And not by judging them. Not by judging them. Oh, believe me, I could do a whole series on what's wrong with with 95% of gospel presentations out there. And it comes down to this. They always want to have that peace in the beginning that judges people. That's not it. All right? If you're involved in that, run away from it. You're not there to judge people. You're there to do the labor of having God save them. There's one more remarkable thing that I have to say. Because maybe, this, maybe we, we don't want to pass by and not notice this. Did you realize that in this book of signs... In this gospel where, he, where John said, these signs I have written so that you may believe. Right? And so many of the people that he met, Jesus met, kept asking him for a sign. Well, we'll believe, but you've got to give us a sign first. Well, the Samaritans weren't like that. It's amazing. The Jews who should have known better kept asking for signs. The Samaritans didn't ask for any sign. They didn't need a miraculous sign to believe that Jesus was the Savior. What did they need? His word. And that was enough for them. I hope it's enough for you. We're going to see next week that it's going to be a different story when he arrives in Galilee just a couple of days from now. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for opening our hearts to who your son really is, for opening up the mission that he had, the mission that he has for us, and the heartbeat that we should have towards the world. We ask, Father, this morning as well that if there's anybody here today or hearing on the, on the internet live feed or 
hears this message sometime in the future and they don't believe in your son. They need to know who he is. And we ask you, Father, that they would understand that all have fallen short, including everybody in this room this morning, and that we've all been justified as a gift, and that, and that the, the truth is that Jesus Christ died for your sins too, and he was buried, and he was raised from the dead, so that you would understand whoever believes in Jesus Christ never perishes, has eternal life, and you, Father, look at that one at that moment, and you declare in the heavens that that one is and will always be righteous in your eyes. We ask, Father, for that message to go out. We ask, Father, that that be the purity of what people hear when they hear from Christians. And we ask also, Father, that we would rejoice in our salvation because that, that, that rejoicing is the fuel for us to continue walking in your plan. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. Amen. All righty. Um, every Thursday, Bible study. 6.30, Skype. Anybody can, whosoever, can come and be with us on our Bible study. We're studying the book of Isaiah. Um, by the way, our giving policy is, uh, <laughs> I don't want to put it this way, but I will just to be a, a brat. Our giving policy is whatever you see 98% of the church is doing, we don't do. How's that? We don't believe in tithing. All right. There's about 70% of them right there. We don't, we don't pass around the basket even. Why? Because this should be totally and completely the way the Lord wants his church, his body, to give freely and rejoice and to understand that they're laboring, that part of what they can do as laborers, maybe they're not the greatest speaker in the world. Maybe they're, maybe they're not even able to do many other things, but you've been blessed with some financial thing. Maybe it was you didn't expect, or maybe you understand how blessed you are, and you just want to labor. You want to be part of it. That's the way you can do it, on your own. Not, we're not going to force you. We're not going to ask you about it. All right? We don't, we don't even... We try not to even consider it, even though, you know, you know, but even consider it when we're, when we're with you guys, okay? That's not, the issue is only between you and the Lord. And the Lord loves a gracious giver. All right. Let's close one more time as we leave this morning. Father, we want to thank you that you are the greatest giver of all time. That you freely gave us your son when we were your enemies. And now that we're your, your children, you won't, we won't hold, you won't hold back any good thing from us. Help us to be a steward of these good things also. And to be able to open our hearts up to people, to the needs that are out there, the need most importantly for people to hear the word of God. And help us to do what you've called us to do, to, to, to join in that work. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, you're dismissed at this point. Go and enjoy this day. Keep in mind what the Lord's done for us and how he approached people. All right, take care.